All right. Well, I think all of us have various levels of forgetfulness in our life for things. You know, I think many of us might say, uh, if you're someone who like puts things down right away and forgets where they are, um, that's not very fun. Uh, I am someone who every once in a while, I don't know if anyone else does this, that I'll be in the shower and I have forgotten if I've washed my hair. And so some of you are laughing. I don't know if that's like a thing or not. I think that's partly uh, partly had to say with my receding hairline. If I'm doing this like too many times, it's like it's not a good thing. Because like if you're a guy with short hair, it like takes 20 seconds and, you know, it's not that big of a deal. I remember a couple weeks ago, I was talking to Brian, who was on staff here about that. He thought it was really funny. And I'm like, that's not that funny. But he's also bald, so he never washes his hair. So like... If, you know, whatever. Um, or something you, that I don't know if this is unique to me or not. If, if, it's, if you're like this, please come talk to me after. Maybe we can start a support group. But I literally, this is not an exaggeration, literally cannot me- remember meeting anybody. Like the first interaction, I don't, remember, I don't know how I met any of you. I know many of you is around New City. You do not have to feel bad. I do not remember meeting my wife. Uh, if it makes it even worse, I remember the day that I met my wife, but I don't remember meeting her on that day. So, you know, I remember where I supposedly was. We had our first interaction, but she is not there in my memory. So I, I just, I can't remember those things. And so it's kind of funny, or maybe sometimes somewhat embarrassing. And today, as we continue through the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see what happens when Jesus' disciples, and maybe with some self-reflection, when you and I have forgotten God and what he has done in our life and how that can impact us. And so if you have a Bible, we'll be in Mark chapter 8. If you want to read along with us, if you do not have a Bible, there's a black one somewhere around you. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. Uh, we are in this series going through the, uh, the book of Mark in the New Testament. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that tell us the story of Jesus and his life. Uh, and so we have been for a while now in the Gospel of Mark. Now, if you were here with us last week, uh, what we saw was that the disciple, or Jesus has is healed a couple of non-Jews. So he's pretty much been kind of run out of town from the Jewish area of Israel, from the various religious leaders. And so now he is in some Gentile areas. He is healing Gentiles, those who are not part of, are not part of God's chosen people. And he's trying, Mark is trying to show us that, again, Jesus is the one that makes the difference, not your ethnicity or what people group you're a part of or what you belong to. And so he's doing some radical things uh, with non-Jewish people. And that is going to continue with what we read this morning. And so we'll be in Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, In those days there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat. He called the disciples and said to them, so Jesus calls his disciples and says, I have compassion on the crowd because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, and some of them have come along distance. So what's happening here in, in verse 1, what it says in those days, it's linking us to the last uh, uh, passage where he's in this Gentile area known as the Decapolis. Uh, it's kind of like the southeastern uh, part of the Sea of Galilee. So typically on the western side of the Sea of Galilee in the first century, you had a lot of Jews. And on the eastern side, you had a lot of Gentiles, a lot of non-Jews. And so that's where he's been. Uh, it says the crowd has been with him for three days, which is a, a long time. In fact, even when it says stayed, it's this in verse uh, 2, it's this Greek word called prosminian which connotes a special adherence to or commitment. That some of these people really wanted to be there. They really wanted to learn from Jesus. They were enjoying being there, and they'd been there for a couple of days. Now, again, last week we saw there in the Decapolis, which just is helpful to know. It's, it's kind of a rugged area. It's kind of rocky. It's hilly. There were not a lot of towns and settlements. And so it is true that some people, when they heard Jesus was in the area, had to travel a great distance to learn from them, from him. And so Jesus sees this. He has compassion. And so he wants to care for them, and so he wants to feed them. And then this is the response 
in verse 4, as he's looking at his disciples, asking them what to do, it says this. His disciples answered him, Where can anyone get enough bread in this desolate place to feed these people? And so the disciples, and if you were here a couple of weeks ago, this might bring to mind what Jesus did recently, which was the feeding of the 5,000 when they were in a desolate and remote place. Jesus is in front of a large crowd, wants to care for them. He asked the disciples how, he's going to, how they could feed him. And so here the disciples answer in a similar way. Well, there's nothing we can do about it because there's nothing close by for us to send them to. Now, again, for time frame wise, this is likely maybe a couple of months at most from the feeding of the 5,000, and so surely they've had a lot going on, but you can read this text and wonder, hey, don't you remember this massive thing that Jesus just did, and yet you are wondering how you can feed these people. Now, the question some people ask, is this simply a retelling of the feeding of the 5,000? Is Mark just kind of telling us that again and trying to emphasize other points? We'll see in a second why I would argue that's not the, tr- that, that's not the case. Uh, but for now, it's also important to remember that in the Gospel of Mark, we see time and time again, the disciples often failing to remember and forgetting what Jesus has already done. We also see in the Gospel of Mark that the disciples never actually ask for a miracle. Typically, when a miracle happens, the disciples are just as surprised as the crowd. And so here, they are forgetting what God has done. Again, us as readers, it's, it's easy for us to be like, how do you forget what God has done in their life? But yet, if we think about our own lives, we can do the same thing, right? For a second, if you're a follower of Jesus, consider this question. What, how often do we forget what God has done? Right? We move on to the next thing. We have a very legitimate need in front of us, and we, we, we don't take the time to pause and reflect, and we forget what God has done in the past, which makes us a lot more anxious in the present. Uh, On a personal note for me, Christina and I, uh, we've been trying to move for over two years. Uh, uh, We put in an offer in before the pandemic, didn't get it, not that big of a deal. Then COVID hits. And so financially, we're like, we're not sure how this is going to work. And then last year, we're like, okay, we're going to try this thing. And so we we put a couple of offers in the houses last year, uh, didn't get any of them. And it's really discouraging, right? I mean, I I, I think our motives are are good for why we want to move, where we want to move, what what it would mean for our family and for ministry and for all these things. Like our, our motivations are pure. And yet it's not happening, and it gets extremely discouraging, especially in a context now where there's not, a, there's not a lot of availability. Our geographical location is very tight where we want to be. House prices are skyrocketing. It seems like, how is this going to happen? In fact, our last, the last offer we put in was like October or November last year, and we didn't get it. And the realtor who was selling the house told our agent to tell us to, to say, hey, tell your buyers to be really encouraged. They put in a great offer. To which I said, no, why don't you tell her that there are no participation trophies in buying a house? I don't want the, oh, you came in second place, good job. We didn't get the house. There's nothing about this that is encouraging, right? But anyway, right, so you, you look at the situation, it's like, how is this ever going to happen? But then what I can do if I forget or if I actually do the opposite and remember what God has done, I can see how God has been more than faithful to me and my family time and time again. It doesn't mean things have always gone the way that we wanted. But even where we currently live now, there's a whole story of how that happened, that God has been extremely faithful. So even in the discouragement of what's happening now, when I forget God's goodness, I become really frustrated and really discouraged, right? How often do we, looking at our own lives, do the exact same thing that the disciples are doing here? And so here's Jesus' response when the disciples say, how are we going to feed these people? We're in the middle of nowhere, verse 5. How many loaves do you have? He, being Jesus, asked them. Seven, they said. 
Verse 6, he commanded the crowd to sit down on the ground. Taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to step before the people. So they served them to the crowd. <coughs> they also had a few small fish. And after he blessed them, he said, he said these were to be served to the people as well. So what happens here is Jesus seats the crowd to feed them and care for them. Now, real briefly, I want to point out the differences between this story and the feeding of the 5,000, just so we know well, what's actually going on here. Uh, the differences we see in this text, first a few weeks ago, is that in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus tells his disciples to sit in the crowd. Here, he personally does it. Even the prayer of blessing is different. So in the feeding of the 5,000, it says he looks up to heaven and he gave thanks. This was a customary Jewish prayer. Here, it doesn't say he do, it does that. It simply says he gives thanks. It's also the Greek word uh, eucharistine, which is the word that we use now, eucharist, meaning the Lord's Supper. In fact, in the first and second century, uh, this prayer of thanksgiving and blessing became the the primary or the predominant Gentile form of blessing before a meal. Uh, We see the number of loaves was different. It was seven in the previous story. It's five here. Uh, The bread and the fish are mentioned separately in this story. In the feeding of the 5,000, they were mentioned together. Uh, In the feeding of the 5,000, the number of people is different. So we'll see here how many people were in this case. In that case, it was 5,000. In this text, it's going to say that the number of people mentioned was total people, men, women, and children. In the feeding of the 5,000, it was saying there were 5,000 men in particular. So there was actually more than 5,000 people. Uh, the, The word for fish here is different. So there's different types of fish, uh, and there's also no uprising at the end. So at the 5,000, many Jews wanted to really take Jesus by force to make him king. That does not happen here. So there are very clearly different stories, but the question then becomes, why does Mark include it? Right, Because Mark and all of the writers of the Gospels do not include everything Jesus does. In fact, they probably, uh, there's probably, not probably, there definitely is more things not included than included. Mark's Gospel being the shortest Gospel of all four, why would he take the time to share a miracle that was so similar to something that Jesus has already done? Why, why would he do that? Well, the reason is something significant is happening here. If you remember, the feeding of the 5,000 happened for the Jewish people, and yet what's happening here is that Jesus is caring for the Gentiles, the non-Jews, in the exact same way that he was caring for the Jews. Right? Jesus, again, is not discriminating against who deserves the love and grace and forgiveness of God. And so Jesus here takes the Gentiles, the enemy of the Jewish people, and does exactly the same thing for him that he does for his own people. And then it says this in verse 8. It says, so they ate and were satisfied. Then they, being the disciples, collected seven large baskets of leftover pieces. About 4,000 were there, and he, being Jesus, dismissed them, and immediately got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dal-Munatha. So what happens here is Jesus feeds them and satisfies them again. And again, remember the context here that Jesus, uh, the previous passage, he's left Israel or the Jewish area to go on purpose to spend time with Gentiles, non-Jews, out of, after being really essentially pushed out by his own people in his own area. And so now, last week we saw a couple of miracles where he's helping and healing. Now he is feeding the Gentiles like they are his own people. And, of course, the difference here is the Gentiles here are surprisingly accepting of his message, right? They want to hear it. 
And of course, uh, many of the Jews also followed Jesus around and wanted to hear it as well. But the last passage we saw when he was in the Jewish area, the Jewish leaders are pushing him out. They are actually antagonistic to what he is trying to say. And so Mark here is showing us that while the Gentiles might be ostracized by the Jewish people, they are not ostracized by God. Or maybe to put, uh, put it in a modern context for a modern understanding for us today, here's what we need to know. That our enemies are not neglected by God, nor beyond the compassion of Jesus. This is what Mark is showing us here. Now, you might think, well, I don't have enemies, right? Like, Joe at work, he's really annoying, and I wouldn't, I actually kind of would like, like, if he got another job, but I don't necessarily want him to die. I mean, that seems kind of extreme, right? But so I don't, like, there's no one that I'm, like, trying to go after that I really just hate, right? So, and, and so, like, that's not really me. And so I would say that's a fair point, right? You and I today don't necessarily go around maybe saying things or verbalizing that certain people are our enemies, but think of any type of person or any type of group or any type of mindset that people might have that you are against, or that you think is ignorant, that you think is wrong, or that you think is evil. In fact, maybe some of these things that you don't like are, are, are maybe people are actually doing things that actually are evil. And so it, it makes you upset when you think about it, right? And so some of these people actually might be evil, and yet the same point is true, that they are still offered Jesus' grace if they would accept it. Just like you and I, in the midst of anything that we have done, the people who have even done the most offensive and horrific things are, are welcome to receive the grace and mercy of Jesus. And so if that's true, the question for you and for me, particularly if you're a follower of Jesus, is that do you and I live in a way that reflects this in how we treat and how we speak about people? Again, there's nothing wrong for standing up for truth, for uh, calling out evil and injustice in our day. This is a very good thing. Yet, do we have any hope or any desire or any uh, realization that God still loves the people, even the people who do wicked and awful things, if they would repent and turn to him? Again, from a Jewish mindset, Jesus is hanging out with those bad people. And yet, they are also offered his love and his mercy. Our enemies are not neglected by God, nor beyond the compassion of Jesus. That's what Mark is showing us here. And so here's what happens next. Verse 11 it says this, verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, this is him being Jesus, demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. So again, in verse 10, Jesus here travels to the west, to the Jewish side, that's where Dalmunatha is, of the Sea of Galilee. And as soon as he lands, again, he is affronted, uh, confronted by the Pharisees, the religious leaders, yet again. And of course, what are they here for? They're here to, to test him, to trap him, to try to get him, mess him up in his own words so that they can compile a case against Jesus. Remember, we've seen this early in Mark, that they really here are wanting to arrest and ultimately kill Jesus, but he's so popular so that they cannot just do it. They need to kind of get evidence and get a case against him to show the people that this is something that actually needs to happen. And so they come and they ask him for a sign from heaven. Now, a sign from heaven is not necessarily a miracle per se, but it's essentially something that would validate Jesus' message that he is God and his ministry is from God himself. Now, of course, this is interest, interesting, right, because Jesus has performed a lot of miracles up until this point. Many of them have heard it, but they still obviously don't believe it, and they're still trying to get him to do things that they can trap him with. And so what's his response? Verse 12, it says this. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. 
Then he left them, got back into the boat, and went to the other side. Right? So he has a sigh of dismay and dismay. Despair and dismay, he's going back to the Gentile side, and he declines their requests, and he leaves. Now, the question is why? Why does Jesus not do what they ask? Well, there's two reasons. One, uh, we know that their request is not genuine. Again, they're trying to trap him and test him so that they can have some kind of legal case to arrest him. And so he says, no. In fact, every time in the Gospels, when people demand a sign, and this is including Satan, when Jesus is tempted by Satan before he begins his earthly ministry, it is always an attempt uh, to gain essentially by empirical means what Jesus wants to give us by faith and trust in him. They kind of want to sub, you know, go around this idea of actually following and trusting Jesus and just want to know, just want it to be proven so they can make sure that they're on the right side. And so that's the first reason. And the second reason is this, is the Pharisees want to use whatever he might use against him, right? Unlike previous Gentiles who we just read about, who actually genuinely desire to learn from Jesus, these people want, he, want to use what he says against him so he leaves. Now, this also brings up to mind a different story in uh, Matthew chapter 12. It'll be on the screen. Uh, Another time where various religious leaders came to Jesus and also asked for a sign, again, to try and trap him. In this case, here's how Jesus responded to them. It says, verse 38, then some of the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you, right? We want to see some sort of validation. Verse 39, he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given, it to, given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in, belly of the, in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at Jonah's preaching, and look, something greater than Jonah is here." He's real briefly, he's mentioning the story of Jonah where God calls the prophet Jonah to preach to the Ninevites, a a nation of Gentiles who were involved in some really evil things. Jonah originally says no. Why? Because he knows, as we say often here at New City Church, that God always responds to repentance with grace, and he doesn't think the Ninevites deserve it, right? They are his enemy. So he tries to run away. Long story short, he gets swallowed by a fish. He repents, and God spits him out. The fish spits him out onto dry land. Then he goes to Nineveh. He actually preaches repentance. They do it, and they are saved. And what Jesus is saying here is, I'm not going to give you any other sign other than this. Just like Jonah, I'm going to actually die. I'm going to be in the earth for three days, and then I'm going to rise. And that anyone who follows and trusts in me will receive salvation, just like these Ninevites who followed and trusted in the Lord, and those who reject me will be condemned. And so I just want to point out here what's going on and what Mark is showing us with Jesus's denial to these religious leaders. Here's what we see that Jesus rebukes unfaithful arrogance, not genuine need. So you might be here and be a little bit uncomfortable. Like if you ever, I won't ask for a show of hands, but have you ever done the, the thing where like you ask God for a sign to do something? Like should I ask this person on a date or should I apply for this job or should I do this thing? And like you're like praying for the sign. My goal here is not to make you feel guilty for that, right? We've all done it. Right? Like, now, and, and, I, and I would submit, I think most of the time we do this, it's not because we're trying to test God. We just, we just want to know. Right? So there is this arrogance like, hey, God, do this thing so that I can know. 
But there's a difference between that and maybe it being unwise to ask God to show you a specific thing to do before you make a decision. Uh, but but he's, not, he, he's not here to condemn those that do that. What's happening here is those that just want a sign to, to puff up themselves and to not actually trust Jesus, that is the problem. So again, I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty if you ever ask for a sign from God to prove himself. That in fact, we actually are invited to ask for Jesus' help. And we're going to see this in a couple of weeks when a man asks Jesus to give him more faith. And so if you're in genuine need, again, it doesn't mean things are going to go always the way that you want, but there is nothing wrong with asking. It's the motivation behind it. And for these religious leaders, it's not for them to know and understand and follow Jesus more deeply. It's to trap him or to do it for their own uh, selfish reasons. And so he doesn't give them what they ask. Then here's what happens next. They get back in the boat with Jesus and his disciples to travel to the other side of the sea where they just came from. It says this, verse 14. It says, The disciples had forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat. Then he gave them strict orders. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They were discussing among themselves, they being the disciples, uh, what, that they did not have any bread. So they're talking about bread again. Again, this theme continues to dominate this passage. And again, the irony here is that the, the disciples are again worried about who, how they're going to eat, right? 5,000, just been fed. 4,000, literally just been fed. And yet they are now worried again. And then Jesus uses this time to give them two teachings. Uh, the first one is this thing about the leaven and to warn them about bad leaven. Now, I, I am not a baker, okay? So what I'm about to explain, I think is 90% accurate, but if I'm wrong, you can tell me after. So let me explain to you what's happening here in this leaven for non-bakers like me. Uh, so today, we typically use yeast, and maybe there's some other fancy stuff that you can put in, into dough, that when you bake it, it causes the bread to rise. Well, in the ancient world, they didn't always have the ingredients needed to do these things. And so what would happen is you would have leaven, which is another bread rising agent, um, and you would need various uh, ingredients to, to put it into your dough to make the bread rise. The problem is, very rarely did you have all of these ingredients to make leaven. And so what you would do is that when you ha would have leaven in your dough, you would put it all in the dough, and then before you would bake that bread, you would take a piece of that dough and you would store it. And so that next week or the next time you make bread, you would make dough again. You would take that piece of dough that has leaven in it, and you would put it in that dough, and it would spread throughout the bread again. And then before you bake that loaf of bread, you would take a small piece off because it has some leaven in it, and you would store it. And you could do this. I was reading this. You could actually do this, if you do this right, for years. Like one small little piece of bread or dough with leaven in it can actually help you rise bread for years, okay? And so that's what would happen. Again, they don't always have these ingredients. Now, here's the problem with that. If your leaven becomes tainted or bad in some way, even just a tiny bit, it ruins all of your bread, that you can no longer make any dough or any bread with that dough because it will all be ruined. So you need to be careful to store this dough correctly so that nothing happens to the leaven. And so what Jesus is saying here is beware of the Pharisees, some of these religious leaders, and Herod, the government that also is against Jesus because they are like bad leaven and they are ruining all the dough. In fact, in Matthew 16, Jesus also talks about this, and the leaven in that passage is identified with the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Uh, in the Gospel of Luke, it's also associated with their hypocrisy, right, saying that they love God, we're doing all these external things, but their hearts are actually far from him. 
Now, in Mark, in this text, uh, the metaphor of why they are bad leaven is not explained to us, but the context makes it pretty clear, right? In In Mark, Herod and the Pharisees have conspired to try and kill Jesus. They are very much against him and his message and what he has come to do. And so it seems here that the opposition to Jesus is what what lumps these two opposing groups together. Beware of those who resist me. That is what he's trying to warn them. And then he gives them another lesson. Again, we'll continue in verse 16. He does this because they were discussing among themselves that they did not have any bread. Verse 17, aware of this, he being Jesus said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of leftovers did you collect? Twelve, they told him. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you collect? Seven, they said. Right? So again, the disciples here are still stuck on no bread. Now, as a quick side note, in verse 14, it actually says there is one loaf of bread in the boat. Of course, if, that, if there is actually a loaf of bread in the boat, it's still not enough you know, to feed all of them and to care, all, care for all of them. But there's also debate among scholars that what Mark is saying is not that there is actually a physical loaf of bread in the boat, but that the loaf of bread, Jesus, the bread of life, is what Mark is referring to when he says that. Regardless, the question is, why do they keep worrying when clearly Jesus can provide? Why do they keep doing that? Now, again, I want to be fair to them and to us. It is completely natural for you and to I, even when we've seen God being amazingly faithful in our life, to worry about provision and the things that are right in front of us that worry us. Like, that's not, that's not uncommon or that's not weird. The problem is that their continual worry when they've seen Jesus move time and time again shows a lack of understanding that they can fully trust God. It's not that it's a problem to, to wonder how they're going to eat. The problem is they are not trusting the one who is right in front of them, who time and time and time again has provided. And so Jesus asked them in verse 18, right, do you have no eyes to see? Do you have no ears to hear what I have done? Again, remember the context. Last week, we also saw that Jesus had just healed a man who could not hear. Next week in the next passage we'll read next Sunday, we're going to see that Jesus is going to heal a man who cannot see. So not just his miracles, or sorry, not just the feeding that's happening here, but also his miracles are pointing to say, I'm the one who does and fulfills all these things. And in fact, the the wording in verse 18 when he's challenging his disciples with this is very similar, almost identical to the wording in Ezekiel chapter 12 in the Old Testament and Jeremiah chapter 5 in the Old Testament, where in both places Israel is accused of not trusting the Lord, right? Do you not trust me? And so they're anxious. And this is true for them, just like it's true for us. Here's what we know, that your level of trust in God is proportionate to your level of peace. Your trust in God, how much you trust and follow and believe in him, is proportionate to how you are feeling in the moment. And sometimes it's greater, and sometimes it is less. Now, again, to be fair, we are human. Very rarely are you going to be 100%, although this is the spiritual answer and it sounds right, right? But very rarely are you going to be 100% no worry at all. But the more we trust, the more we remember, the least anxious, the least frustrated and or discouraged we might be in that moment, right? When our worry increases, 
our peace decreases. <laughs> I remember, I've shared this before, I, <laughs> I grew up in Cary, North Carolina, which is one of the safest places to live in all the United States. And by I mean safest places to me, I mean like literally. I remember when I was a kid, we were like in some like top 10 safest towns in all the United States to live. And so I like Googled it this week and we still are. Like there's different mid-sized things. Like in 2021, it was like mid-sized level towns and it was like top 10. But in 2019, Cary was number one in one of these lists of like safest places they'd live in all the United States, right? And I, growing up, I never locked the front door ever to our house. And my parents would get like really annoyed, but it's like, no one ever comes here, right? And so I didn't lock a door until I got to college. And, um, and so I say that because there were a couple times, not often, but every once in a while, my dad would go out of town for work. And when he would leave, I would get really scared. And I'm like, bro, you live, lock the door if you're so scared. Maybe that's the solution, right? But I would just get worried because I was like, well, if something happens, right? If the bad guys all decide to come when he's gone, what are we going to do? I was worried, even though nothing was going to happen. And so my peace was lessened. And I think this is true for us. When we forget, the more anxious we become. Again, as I was sharing with you, the frustration with Christina and I wanting to move, right? When I look at the house prices and look at the lack of availability and look right in the moment, I get really discouraged and really frustrated. But yet when I remember, even not having, even wondering how this is going to work out for us, when I remember God's goodness and faithfulness in our life, I'm reminded to trust that God has never been unfaithful to us. And while this situation is not what I would want, there are so many things happening that I cannot even comprehend that God might be doing. Your level of trust in God is proportionate to your level of peace. The disciples here are not trusting, they are not understanding, and so they are really worried. And then it says this, the last verse in verse 21, after he, the disciples reminding themselves by answering Jesus how faithful he has been, it says this, and he, being Jesus, said to them, said to them, don't you understand yet? So again, twice now we have seen stories, miraculous, massive stories, where Jesus has multiplied food to, to care for the people. Right? Again, Mark is showing us that Jesus here is the bread of life, and yet his disciples are still struggling to fully understand and comprehend who he is and all that he has done. Now, I also think it's just, it's just worth pointing out here that Jesus here is also not asking for blind faith. In fact, contrary to maybe, you know, shots that people take about people with faith and Christians or whatever, Scripture actually never asks us to have blind faith. Like, of course, we can't prove everything. We don't know everything. But what Jesus is reminding here, or really what he is challenging with or just chastising his, his disciples with, is not, that they're, not their lack of uh, faith or belief, or belief necessarily. What he's chastising them is their hardness of heart because they're of their lack of understanding about how he has been faithful in the past. Right? He wants them to look at, at Jesus' previous faithfulness to them to trust him with the future. He's not just saying, hey, just trust me and hopefully it'll work out. He's saying, look at the past. Look what I've done. That's not going to answer exactly how I'm going to do it in the future, but you should be able to look in the past and see that I've been good and that I've been trustworthy. And so what we see here that Jesus is trying to teach his disciples, what Mark is trying to show us is this, that Jesus is the giver of life. Right? In, in, in the ancient world, in many parts of the world today, bread literally equals life. Your ability to eat bread and have sustenance is how you survive. And what Jesus is telling his disciples is that your sustenance, your provision, your life is found in me. Right? The disciples here are worried just about where their next meal is going to come from. And Jesus is trying to say, not only can I provide that, but I can provide for you 
all things. Again, it's very legitimate to be worried in this ancient context of how they're going to eat. Again, they've probably traveled a lot and been hungry a lot and not have a lot of money. And yet Jesus is trying to say, don't you remember how you have not yet gone hungry, how you have not yet been not provided for, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, and now you are worried again about what's going to happen. You know, and it's interesting, even, and I, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here, and this is not a knock about if you know all the Bible stories in the Bible, because there's not like a Bible quiz that you're going to get into heaven, you got to get like 70% to get, that's not a thing. But it's interesting, right? Most of us, even if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, and you don't have very much familiarity with the Bible, you have probably, there's a good chance you've heard about the feeding of the 5,000 at some point. How many of us even knew there was another miracle like this in the New Testament? Right? And it's recorded in multiple Gospels, right? We even forget the greatness and the goodness of God, right? And this is the good news of the gospel, that God is not just a God who says, hey, just trust me and hope, and I promise that I love you, but he is a God of demonstrated action who has come and revealed himself in Jesus to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, to offer us life, to offer us grace, to offer us forgiveness, and to offer us love. And to be clear, this does not mean that you're going to get your, your needs provided for in the way that you might want them to be provided for. In this life, in fact, following Jesus can mean things go worse for you. But ultimately, the giver of life has come to give us grace, mercy, and forgiveness, and to invite us into his kingdom where there is one day where there will be no more pain, suffering, or this desire of hunger because the giver of life will dwell with us. Jesus here is the giver of life. And so that being said, here's what, how I want us to close. I want us to close reflecting on this question. Where have I forgotten God's provision in my life? Now, I'm not talking generalities, you know, that God, you know, has provided and he's faithful, but think specifically here in your life. Uh, where have I forgotten and quickly moved past, right, that he provided financially or relationally or uh, in a way that's caring or a way that he revealed his love and his mercy for me? Where, where, where has he answered prayers in my life, which I was really excited about for about a week? And then the next thing happened, and I have already forgotten. I would submit to you that the more that we remember, the more peace that we have. It does not mean what we're facing right now is not going to be hard. It does not mean right, what we're facing right now is going to be the way that, turn out the way that we want, and we don't have to have any, you know, any anxiety or any worry. It's not to say that's going to happen. But I would, I would guess that the more you remember God's goodness in your life in the past, he will, it's an invitation to continue to trust him even in the unknown right 